passage this morning is 1 Timothy 2. Uh, I've listed verses 8 through 15, but it's really just going to be verses 8, 9, and 10 this morning as we look at this text. But before I read it, let me remind you where we are as we're moving through 1 Timothy. Uh, the second chapter is a chapter that um, principally concerns the subject of prayer. And the apostle begins that uh, passage by urging uh, all people everywhere uh, to pray, uh, to pray in terms of uh, their supplications and their prayers and their intercessions and their thanksgiving for all men, uh, particularly those who are in authority, kings and all who are in authority and leadership over us. And then in verses uh, three and four, he gives the gospel foundation for prayer. He says that our prayers are pleasing in the sight of God, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And we've looked at those verses in depth, and we recognize that what motivates prayer uh, from God's perspective is the same thing that motivates the gospel from God's perspective. It is this will of God, this desire of God that that all people, all manner of people, all kinds of people, all classes of people would be saved. It's that will of God that will ultimately be fulfilled, as we read in Revelation 5-9, where Jesus, where we read that Jesus has purchased people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and they're going to be those who worship and serve the living God forever. So when we come to this matter of prayer, we need to see its connection to the gospel, to see it's connected with God's deep desire to see people saved, and to understand that our prayers are an instrumental means that God uses to bring people into himself. And so we begin then with 1 Timothy chapter 2, reading verses 8, 9, and 10. And Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And let's pray. Father, we ask for a strong measure of your Holy Spirit as we uh, dig into your word and help us to understand it. But we would pray that uh, it would be far more than just understanding uh, we pray that your word would do its work with us, motivating us to be the people you want us to be. And we would pray, Lord, that we would be faithful then, faithful to you, faithful to your word, faithful to our calling. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to think about our circumstances as we uh, consider this passage today. Uh, there is a global fight on against this virus, and every one of us is caught up in it. I don't need to recite to you uh, anything more than what you already know. You probably have such a load of information about this that hearing about it and hearing about it further is, is less than what you would desire. But the connection or the question for this passage this morning is, how does this passage that we've read and the subject matter we're going to be looking at, how does that connect to our present circumstances, a circumstance in which the the people of God are as much in this crisis as anyone else in the world. How does a passage that speaks to the roles and the rules about the conduct of men and women, how does that guide us in our present and unusual circumstances? 
at first glance, it might seem that it really doesn't. But consider what Paul says about Scripture. In fact, this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17 that I'm going to read, this is Scripture really talking about Scripture itself. All Scripture is breathed out by God, all Scripture, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, let me put the emphasis upon this last phrase, equipped for every good work. And that reminds us that in our present circumstances, we need God's word teaching us, training us in righteousness, so that we can do the good works that are presently needed in our present circumstances. Now, this is my hope for this morning, that we can be taught from the word of God and equipped for the good works that we need to be doing during this present crisis. Now, the text itself uh, easily divides up between what it says about the men and what it says about the women. And so my message is going to be organized that way. But I'm going to add a third point, uh, a kind of summary point. What does this passage then say to us? What does it say to us in our present circumstances? So to begin with, what Paul says to the men. Let me repeat verse 8. Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, note there are two issues that Paul addresses. Men should pray on the one hand, but also, secondly, as they pray, they shouldn't be quarreling or angry with each other. Now, that causes us to think about what's the background for why Paul would speak about men quarreling and being angry with one another. Well, here's the reality. There were problematic men at Ephesus, and they were a real problem. They were a poison to men's ministries, and they were a poison to the church as a whole. And that's what Paul is actually referring to where he would call upon men not to come together to pray, uh, men who are angry and quarreling with each other. So let's note where in 1 Timothy and then also in 2 Timothy, we can actually see uh, these problematic men that existed in the church at Ephesus. Now, in chapter 1, we've already looked at this. Uh, we read there about the presence of bad teachers and bad teaching, uh, men who were influencing and promoting influencing the church and promoting uh, controversy. Uh, the result of this, uh, vain speculations, vain discussions. Their bad teaching had swerved from the proper aim of sound teaching. And in their own lives, they had lost uh, the virtues of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So we looked at that adequately in chapter 1. If we were to go to chapter 6 of First Timothy, verses 3 through 5, we'd see that Paul is concerned with men who are, quote, puffed up, puffed up with conceit, unquote, who understand nothing, who have, quote, an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Now, these men are responsible for all manner of conflict, then, that ensues within the church life. Paul says envy and dissension, slander, evil suspicions. Paul goes on to say that they stir up constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Further, 
uh, Paul said that these men wrongly imagine that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now, when Paul writes his letter to Second Timothy, his second letter to Timothy, um, again, he mentions problematic men. In chapter 2, verses 16 to 18, he writes about those who promote irreverent babble, uh, which leads then to leads people into more and more ungodliness. And Paul speaks of such men and their talk uh, as that which spreads like gangrene. Uh, that's a terrible image. Uh, and then Paul names the worst of the culprits. Once again, we see that Hymenius involved. You know, how he's still involved after being consigned over to Satan, we don't know. Paul doesn't tell us. But there he is somehow still having a toxic influence upon the men at Ephesus. And then he mentions another man, Philetus. Paul points out that they have, quote, swerved from the truth uh, with her false teaching. Uh, They're even saying that, quote, the resurrection has already happened. And the impact of this is that some believers were having their faith deeply upset by by them. So the point is this. Paul was quite aware that some men were having an undue influence upon a certain segment of the church. Certainly not all of the church was affected this way, but there was enough affecting the church so that um, it was disturbed. There were men who were behaving more like men of the world than they were men of Christ. Now, further, when we see that Paul alludes to this concern and then connects what he alludes to with prayer, we can draw a certain implication, a positive implication about what we see here. It's this. This must have been the conviction of the Apostle Paul, that when Christian men are preoccupied with talking to God, that is, when Christian men are preoccupied with praying, and they're praying about the conditions of the world, and they're praying together about the salvation of the world, then they will not have much time or much of a desire to be engaged in foolish controversies or being contentious or angry or conflicted with one another or to even be engaged in bad teaching to other believers. The point is this, is that the Apostle Paul applies a God-centered solution to a very toxic problem. Now, the second aspect of verse 8 dealing with the matter of prayer specifically, I want to begin by saying, think about Paul's apostolic authority. We know from the doctrine of Scripture and the apostles that because of the inspiration of the Scriptures, what Paul writes, God says. Therefore, what Paul is writing here is God's will in a matter of prayer. And God's will is that men would gather together and pray together in a spirit of holiness. Now, how do I know that the implication here is that, or the the actual evidence is that men were gathering together for prayer? It's because unless they were gathered, well, we know that men were gathering together because unless men were gathering together, uh, they wouldn't have an opportunity to be quarreling with each other or being angry with each other. So what Paul does here is he doesn't ban men meeting together. Rather, Paul is banning toxic meeting, where men can do more harm than good. And and God's God-centered solution is that men would come together to pray, to pray for the needs of the world and to pray for the needs of the church. Paul does 
desire for men to come together. And that should be obvious in verse 8, because when men are by themselves, as I said, there's not much danger of anger or quarreling. But it's also the case that God has designed the church, the body of his son, to have men coming together because it's vital for the spiritual health of both the church at large and for the men themselves. Because when men pray together, they become close and bonded brothers in Christ. They share each other's lives and burdens, and they encourage each other in knowing Christ more deeply. Now, that's why during this present crisis, even though we have to shelter alone, so to speak, uh, our, our times of prayer together as men are going to continue. In fact, even be more frequent. We have the technology to do this online, and we're going to use that technology to make it possible for the men of the church to come together and to pray together so that during this difficult time, we have a God-centered solution in terms of what we ought to be doing and how we ought to be relating to each other, praying together, making Christ first, the gospel first, the needs of the world's first, praying about these things so that we can be used of God to build up the church, used of God to also influence the world. And secondly, we turn to what Paul says to the women. So I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 again. Likewise, Paul says, likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, we notice the verse begins with likewise, and so that indicates that Paul is continuing to be concerned about the subject matter of the chapter, the subject matter of prayer. We could say that Paul's concern here is about women and their adornment, both in the matter of what they wear in terms of their apparel, but especially in the context of what they're doing, what their activities happen to be, which includes their prayer and prayer life within the church. So look at verse 9, where Paul writes about apparel. Now, it's apparent, or it's clear, that just as there were problematic men at Ephesus, there are issues among the women here in the church. And Paul's particular concern and the advice that he gives actually echoes what is evidenced in the historical literature at the time of the New Testament, the secular literature. You see, what we know about the church at uh, Ephesus, uh, there in uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, is that the secular writing writers were raising a particular concern about certain women. They were criticizing a segment of women within society who spent an inordinate amount of time uh, braiding their hair and adorning their hair and their clothing with gold and pearls and costly jewels and so forth. Now, Often this was just simply an outward show of their wealth. But at the same time, and why the criticism is so significant from the secular writers, at the same time, this was the same manner in which very high-class prostitutes presented themselves. The secular writers were criticizing women who were not themselves courtesans or high-class prostitutes, but they were dressing like them. Now, likewise, Paul is concerned, showing us 
that God is concerned. There were women within the church who were dressing like professional, high-class Cartesians. And it was a bad witness. And it was a bad influence. So here's the teaching, straight and simple. Women who profess Christ should not conform in their dress to the patterns of the world, especially when that adornment mimic women who live ungodly lives. Now, does that mean the Apostle Paul or even God himself was rejecting uh, braided hair or having expensive jewelry? No. What's really being rejected here is the excess and the ostentatious display that really violates genuine modesty, uh, that violates uh, common sense respectability. Clearly, there's a time and place for, for everything that's, that's acceptable. You know, if rich Christians are going to a rich people's function, you know, that's one thing. Uh, they can dress in accordance with what is acceptable at that kind of, a, of an event. So that's not the issue. It's not the rejection totally in that way. The issue is the church and the life in the church. Church is never the place for showing off. It's, a never, it's never the place for displays of immodesty. And, of course, the underlying concern is the motivation of the heart. God wants godly women to pursue godliness in how they live. And that leads to the second point, where in verse 10, Paul says, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So here the apostle is telling us that um, godly women, their proper adornment uh, is going to be recognized in terms of their activity. So what should be notable about godly women and what should be noticeable about godly women is not how they dress, but according to what Paul says, but how they are engaged in good works. Now, even though we are not saved by good works in any way whatsoever, except the work of Christ, even though we're not saved by good works, the New Testament has the highest view of good works. Think about Ephesians 2.10. Paul writes, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This verse tells us, God has saved us, united us to Christ, in order that we would do good works. That's a very, very strong purpose statement about the Christian life. If someone were to say, why did God save you? The answer is, he saved me for good works. It's the basic, foundational, underlying purpose of the life of every Christian. We were saved in order to live and to do good works. And if someone were to say, well, what's the strongest witness that you can possibly have before the world? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify God, the Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus isn't talking about the very thing that he condemns the Pharisees for. He's not talking about practicing your righteousness before other people. Uh, that's virtue signaling. He's talking about getting into doing things which actually help other human beings who are in need. 
actually getting in there and doing things. And we know from the history of the church, from the early church particularly, that they embraced this calling to do good works, and it radically changed society. The Greco-Roman world routinely practiced infanticide. If there was a child they didn't want, if there was a baby born that was deformed, uh, they would cast these babies into the river, or they would leave them abandoned in the woods. And it was the practice early on of Christian women going out into the woods and seeking and finding these babies and taking them back and raising them as their own. A Christian fisherman would uh, find babies abandoned into rivers or see that this was about to happen, and they would rescue these babies and make sure these babies were raised. The early church stood against infanticide. They involved themselves in the good works of rescuing those who were so deeply in need. So Paul is stressing that godly women will adorn themselves in this manner with good works, which is to say that godly women will embrace the purpose of their salvation. Godly women will worry each day, not about what they look like, but about who is in need, who can be helped. And that concern to help, the foundation of good works, begins with prayer. Godly women called to pray for those who are in need, then called to take good works to those who are in need. Now, summing this up, what is Paul saying to all of us? It's telling us that the work of the church begins in the presence of our Father in heaven. Now, think about what I just said. The work of the church, the good works of the church, begin in the presence of our Father in heaven, in the presence of our Father in heaven in prayer. We are called to pray for society before we go out and engage society. That is why even when many of us might be under the conditions of sheltering at home, we have not lost the ability to do good works. Because we can pray, and now we have more time, and we can pray now more than ever before. God had, has granted this season where there is time on our hands, so to speak, in order that we might use that time, redeem that time for the sake of his purposes in the world. We must redeem this time. We must be committed to pray. Now, as I con conclude and close this message, I want to give a kind of a final encouragement, especially if you are sheltering alone and at home, especially if you might be and have felt some sense of uselessness in the midst of all of this. What good can I do? This week, with a little more time to spare, I was sifting and sorting through a number of old things I'd taken out of my dad's house after he died. Uh, I came across a business card. Um, the front side was X'd out. On the back side, the blank side, my dad, with his great sense of humor, who was always teasing me, loved to tease me, had written a little dialogue uh, between himself and me. And it read like this. Daddy to Randy. Randy, what's the matter? 
Randy to dad. Oh, I feel so alone and useless. Daddy to Randy. Randy, you don't have to feel, you don't have to feel so alone and useless. Lots of people think you're useless. Well, the truth is, we may be sheltering alone, but we are far from useless. The first aspect of the good works that God has called us to do is to pray. And we can pray. It's God's desire and design that we would be lifting up prayer for all people, for kings and those in authority over us. Because it is the desire of God that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Let us, during this time of crisis, be not worried about ourselves so much as worried for the world. And having that worry and concern lead us to pray, to pray often, to pray faithfully, and to pray knowing that our prayers are in alignment with the great desire of a great God and a great gospel. In Jesus' name. Amen.